0: This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business.
1: This week's Shoeshine looks at the importance of resilience when you're an entrepreneur. Fiona Rotherham joins me now to talk about that. Why even look at this topic in the first place Fiona?
2: Well, it really came about because I was sitting at the annual High Tech Awards in Christchurch last Friday night. Uh, big, glitzy event with over 1,000 people. And, and, and you know, you feel proud to be a New Zealander because there's all these successful companies telling these stories and it makes a change from hearing about MP stuff-ups or, you know, RAM rates. And, uh, anyway, one of the finalists in the High Tech Company of the Year Awards um, category, it was uh, Darren uh, Grafton from Circo actually, in his speech about the company, he talked about resilience and he was talking about their comeback because during COVID, they had their revenue drop to nothing, basically, because yep. they do travel booking software, and just how they coped with it and how they've gone from really zero to hero, in his words. And, and it made me start thinking about this topic of resilience, particularly when you think about the fact that 67% of um, startups fail within two years and uh, how resilience must play a, a, a fact, uh, be a key factor in, in those that are successful.
1: What is resilience?
2: Well, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot lot of academic research around about this, but I spoke to Professor uh, Rod McNaughton, who's one of the directors at the Auckland Business School's uh, Centre for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. He's done quite a bit of reviewing of the literature on this, and he said people often get confused because there's two meanings, really. There's personal resilience, which is, you know, how uh, persistent or how flexible or adaptable, you know, the founder is really. But there's also that organisational resilience. So that's whether the company's actually set up to withstand big shocks like COVID or not and, and just how they managed to recover and come back from that sort of event.
1: So maybe jumping back to the Circo example then, what what, what does he say about resilience?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because um, he, he and Bob, McSh- uh, McShaw, who, uh, sorry, Bob Shaw, who is... Um, you know, uh, co founder in yep. Surco, They've worked together in other companies and they've faced a whole lot of external shocks they've had. The GSC, SARS, Wineflow, you name it. And so it ECs they've learnt resilience from that. And and with with Surco in this instance, they really, um, didn't he said he felt no fear this time because he knew what to do and, and what they did they had enough capital but they went out and raised some more capital um, when Omicron got announced actually another eighty five mil so they had the money to say we're going to keep going we have a two year runway with all our existing staff and let's really lean into spending money on this new platform we're building so that when we come out the other side we're going to do be even better and they worked on things like you know, software that helps you know um, you know really um, their customers grow when they came out of of the, the borders not being closed anymore and that sort of thing. So it's it, you know their revenue is is you know back up to. You know those really healthy levels again, so it really worked for them. Uh, Vista's another example yep. of that as well. So because
1: um, their if, revenue would have gone to zero basically yeah, as well, well during COVID, pr- pretty much. Yeah,
2: pretty much. That's mm. right because you know cinemas around the world closed, and that's the the core cool, um, thing. Is you know they service over fifty percent of the cinema companies around the world, excluding yep. China. So they they had a similar situation. Again, they were well capitalized. They didn't panic. They did have to lay some staff off, but they raised mm-hmm. and you know some money and. Um, in this case, instance again they went out to the market and got a bit more just to cushion it and then they really leaned into their new platform they fast-tracked introduction of that which was shifting people off a um, sort of maintenance contract and you know on-site servers model to subscription and cloud-based so that when the cinema's come back on they had mm. you know um, a better way of doing things and, and you know and again their results have come back and showing that it's really worked so they had that resilience that's really worked and I spoke to the new CEO Stuart Dickinson who's come in you know in April this year and Mm. and he said this, this is a company that was persistently growing. They hadn't they hadn't known any bad times and they got hit with us and it was like, whoa. And for a lot of staff, it was quite difficult to cope with, but it's brought them closer and it's made them more resilient and he thinks it's just made them stronger in terms of going forward.
1: So, that, yeah, that's interesting. Do you, do you have to go through something to learn resilience or can it be taught?
2: Well, it depends who you talk to. I think um, <laughs> founders say it's best to learn. I mean, in the yeah. case of Grafton, for example, you know, he's learned a lot of resilience, but the academics, of course, say it can be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, I, um, Grafton mentors a lot of young startups on a Thursday night and he says he talks to them a lot about resilience and about the need to, you know, really um, find people to talk, talk through your pressures and, you, and, 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 you, and how you're feeling about things um, so that in public, you're presenting a very strong positive face mm. you know and the, the customers and the investors will have confidence in you one of the things McNaughton has done more recently has been some research um, with others on um tall poppy syndrome yeah last year and one of the things he said that that showed was that tall poppy syndrome really hampers the ability of entrepreneurs to feel they can come out and say I stuffed up on something or I failed th- this and and make those learnings, um, yep. I hate that word learnings, but make those <laughs> lessons or whatever you want to say, um, mm. you know, really public and talk about it because they, and conversely, people, successful people don't want to talk too much about how well they've done either because, and and, and people could learn off that because they feel like, you know, people are going to criticise what they've done. So, you know, New Zealanders can be
1: quite judgmental. But, do, you, um, do you think the ecosystem is getting better at talking about? that sort of stuff? Or? Yeah,
2: it's interesting. Um, Blackbird Ventures, which yep. is an Australasian venture capital firm, they actually really encourage their, the founders in their portfolio to go and, um, you know, either get a counselling from a psychologist or a mentor to talk through resilience. And, mm-hmm. and it's actually a subject that they think is a really um, good way to spend funds on. I also spoke to... Um, You know, others in this industry, um, Michael Murphy from NZTE, he points out resilience is something entrepreneurs need every day because you get constantly told no. It's not just these big one off shocks he's talking about. Every day you get told no from a customer, no from a financial banker, no from even staff who want to come and work for you. And he said, so you have to have that grit, you have to have that resilience. And, um, you know, again, he says you need to find some peers or other types of, you know, mentors that can really allow you to behind the curtain talk through all these issues you're facing, how how are you going to deal with it, what, what your challenges are. So when you go out in public, you've got this really positive, confident face.
1: Interesting stuff. Fiona, thanks for your time.
2: Thank you. For this week's
3: look at employment law in our Toil and Trouble slot, I'm joined by Shelley Eden, Principal of Shelley Eden Law. She joins me to talk about two private members' bills that are in
4: the process of becoming law, and Shelley, the first of these is about parental leave. That's right. Um, Hi Dita, nice to see you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting little piece of legislation that is kind of slid in front of us. Um, What it's proposing to do, so Paid parental leave is obviously something that a parent can apply for and be paid a certain up their wages up to a certain threshold point um, for 26 weeks after a baby is born. So so far so good. Mm. What this will do is actually allow parents to split that between them. So you could have someone, for instance, take 20 weeks parental leave, paid parental leave, and the other um, partner could take six, say, just for argument's sake. The not quite nice thing about it is what it will actually allow is for them to take that at the same time and to actually overlap. So, if right. say uh, one parent takes 20 weeks, the others could take the six at the beginning or at the end, but actually also in the middle. And the intention is that it will allow the two parents to be at home together with the baby, both on a period of paid parental leave. And so, it's quite a nice um, little potential change to the legislation. Right. It was this one that Nicola Willis. That, that's right. So it's a national initiative. It's a it's a private members bill. So um, MPs can um, put forward a bill that they think should be passed into law, and they get there's some kind of balance system they get drawn out and when they're drawn out they then go through the select committee process the process of trying to be passed into law not all of them make it but actually interestingly paid parental leave initially was a um, private member's bill from Lailahare back in the day right. and it came into law through that. So we do, do have some quite interesting um, pieces of employment law that have come out through this private member bill process. It's
3: interesting that Nicola Willis, although I know she's got four children, she's obviously interested in the family issues, but this suggests that it might have bipartisan support because... Um, you know, national wouldn't normally introduce something that would make things more complicated on the employment front, would they?
4: No, that's exactly right. I would imagine that this is quite an easy bill to pass in the sense yeah. that it's a nice. It sounds. How would you vote against that? Yeah. Two parents get to spend some time together at home with the baby, and yes. um, both on paid parental leave. That sounds like a no-brainer. As a, a nice thing to do, so I would expect it to pass. Yes.
3: And just to clarify, um, at the moment. A man does get two weeks, but they're unpaid. Leave? That's
4: that's exactly right. Yes, the partner of the partner, the, shouldn't of say of the man. person who yeah. has the baby. Yes, yeah. But, but traditionally, it would be the man, but it, it could be a, a could be we don't woman know, either woman or either sort. And <laughs> um, so um, you have got to be careful these days. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, parents come in all in all shapes they and sizes. Do. I think, and and so that what's nice about this is it allows for that, a, a, and a move away maybe from the traditional gender roles or the traditional gender mm-hmm. norms where the wife or the woman stays home and have the baby and has the paid parental leave, and the man is Still at work, and and it's nice that we can adapt to the flexible families that we have now, and the changing, you know, ways of living, and yeah. and so I think it's a really nice piece of legislation.
3: Of course, progressive companies probably already did this kind of thing, did they?
4: Yeah, you do get quite a few businesses that do already provide paid parental leave that would give it to either either um parent and yeah I think I think that that's fair to say um, most people probably get paid parental leave through the government system I, I would think on balance so reasonably it's a really good incentive to bring people back to work so if you do have a parent who takes parental leave um, then rewarding them with paid parental leave that that you know perhaps on their return or during the time that they're home with the child is actually quite a nice incentive to give to staff and in these days when people are looking at retention of staff it can be quite a good thing to, to do at a probably a relatively low cost. Model, to be honest, yeah, um, but very valuable to the person themselves because a lot of people when they're having babies, you know, they're looking at an uncertainty financially, and yeah. so this, you know, provides a bit of a cushioning to that, which is nice.
3: Yeah, it's great. Um, now, this KiwiSaver one, can you explain this because
4: I'm this a bit mind melding. Yeah, look, I understand. It's it's a little bit of a complicated way to solve a problem that I'm not certain is a problem completely. Uh, but but ha- anyway, having said that, so. KiwiSaver, you pay into it as an employee if you have a KiwiSaver um, account and your employer also makes a contribution. And what the law allows for currently is that your KiwiSaver employer contribution can be included, can be seen to be included in your salary or wages, so long as it doesn't fall foul of the minimum wage app or park that little complexity. (laughs) So um, a really simple way of looking at it is if a worker is on $60,000 a year and they don't have a KiwiSaver account, then they won't get the 3%. Um, employer contribution, but if their colleague does have a KiwiSaver account, they will get that. And so to even things out, there was a, initially the idea was that employer contribution would be on top of your salary or wages, and there was a change to the law in 2007 which allowed it to be included in. So when employers look at like what they call total rem, or the total amount of payment they're making to you, mm-hmm. if I'm on 60 and you're on 60, and one of us has got KiwiSaver, one of us hasn't, we're both gonna get paid the same amount overall. What that wasn't really the original intention of the Kiwi Saver Act, and so what this legislation does, interestingly, interestingly, it doesn't just reverse the change; it adds it adds a grievance to the list of personal grievances if an employer treats employees differently in that circumstance. So what that means, what it all boils down to, (laughs) is that if I don't have KiwiSaver, I'm going to get my 60K. If you do have KiwiSaver, you're going to get your 60K plus the 3% employer contribution on top. Our employer is not allowed to treat us differently um, just because one of us have KiwiSaver and one of us doesn't. So it's not
3: like I'd get... Fifty-seven thousand plus. TV Correct. Saber, That's, and be exactly right. That's exactly right. That's
4: exactly right. So, in a in a in a in a slightly complex way, what it will do is what it should do actually and this is the quite interesting part about it it should pull people towards KiwiSaver which is the aim of the KiwiSaver account so at the moment if our employer takes a total remuneration approach and we just get the same amount of dollars whether it goes into KiwiSaver or goes somewhere else or goes straight to us we get the same amount of dollars what this would mean is you would as the KiwiSaver person you'd get your three percent on top and I would look at you and go hang on a second like yeah. rationally, I would open a KiwiSaver account and get my three percent separately as well. So it it should it, it's being presented as a bill to prevent discrimination against you know between us. I think what it's really trying to do actually is pull people into KiwiSaver, which is you know a good a good dumb goal I would say. It's a good goal, but you seem to suggest that there's not really a problem there. Well, I, I, look, I I do know that quite a few employers do take that total remuneration approach, and the KiwiSaver contributions included included. But you know, at the end of the day, I think pay rates and salary rates are set by the market, apart from the minimum wage. And so, it, if I'm worth sixty thousand, then I'm worth sixty thousand, and that is what my employer will pay for me. And whether and and I think that you know, at the end of the day, if they have to. Absolutely, put the KiwiSaver on top. Then they just might start advertising the role for fifty-seven or whatever the amount is, and yeah. um and pay the KiwiSaver on top. So I don't know that it drives the change, you know, necessarily in the same way, um especially in terms of that employer side of things of trying to make employers behave better. I don't know if it necessarily drives mm, that change, but yeah. I, I, I that doesn't mean I think it's bad or wrong. I, I just I, I don't yeah I don't know if there's a whole lot of KiwiSaver account holders being terribly discriminated against because of their status as a KiwiSaver account holder so maybe it could have been done in a slightly different way which is just say that KiwiSaver goes on top regardless and you can't negotiate it out and maybe that was the way to do this but you know I mean it's as I say it's not a bad it's not bad or wrong it's just a a way of doing something I, I might have done it a different way it doesn't mean I'm right either.
3: And it might add a little bit of complexity for employers when they have to think about this kind of thing.
4: Well, it's interesting, yes, that's exactly right. What's interesting is it creates a new personal grievance claim. So we're now, yeah. you know, there, there's a few that we know about and there keeps we keep seeing additions to that. And that's fine, but it does, yeah, it does make the situation a little bit more com- complex. So an employer who fa- doesn't realise they're doing it wrong or, you know, is trotting along in this particular way can can face a claim, whereas really what's the intention is that people should be paid right and fairly and that KiwiSaver yeah. should be seen as a good thing to join. And I don't know if coming down on a stick is quite the way... Coming yeah. out with a stick is quite the way to do yeah. it. But again, I, you know, I don't mean to be critical. I think it's got a good intention and and um, it's a labour-driven... Um, you know, piece of legislation, it will get tidied up through the select committee, which maybe will, will help make, you know, could end up with a, well, usually does end up with a better result. So mm. um, watch this space. Shelley, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Nice to see you.
5: It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher. Christoph recession, big deal? Uh, No, it sounds dramatic, but uh, if you actually take a calm look at what is happening, no, I don't think so. Um, New Zealand is not in a recession as as such. We associate a recession with long-term downturn of the economy, high unemployment, all these things, and none of this is happening. Why are we obsessed with growing each quarter? Well, it seems that every growth theory we, we have... Uh, tells us that we can grow infinitely despite finite resources of our planet, and that's simply because uh, technological advances always tell us we can become more efficient. So growth is the single target of every economy. Every country announces it is happy if we grow and is uh, crying if if we are not. What is the benchmark then? Well, at the moment, uh, the idea of uh, the term technical recession simply relates to two quarters, successive quarters uh, with negative growth. Now, even the word negative growth suggests how obsessed we are with growth. We are not shrinking. We have negative growth. Um, and. Just the second quarter in a row, and it's a recession, regardless of whether the growth was very, very marginal or whether there were some good reasons why we didn't grow as much as we hoped for. The data certainly shows that the economy is slowing. Is the real recession to come then? Um, no, I don't actually think so, because take a look at the bigger picture. We had four quarters of growth, followed by a weak um, December quarter last year. And expectations were for New Zealand to grow again. But then two cyclones hit, which hit our primary sector hard, um, This ex- exports were suffering, and we are just feeling um, the end result of this. So the recovery is just taking a bit longer than we hoped for, because the primary sector um, wasn't growing as much. in. in that first quarter of this year as we hoped Um, and in addition to that the service sector struggled more than we anticipated. End result we marginally came in at negative growth. Hmm. But in the months to come will there be a, a stark deterioration in the economy? No, no, I don't think so either because, first of all, we are seeing this huge surge in uh, migration and that has always been a key driver of our economy because people arrive in the country, they need to buy a car, furniture, they spend money, groceries, so on. So um, this is just uh, realizing and happening now and filtering through the economy. So that will give the economy a boost. The primary sector is recovering uh, as we speak. So uh, I believe the forecast is for growth in the next quarter. What about the arguments that the Reserve Bank's gone too far? I I have been critical of of the Reserve Bank action, but this time around I actually need to defend them because, um, sure, when the government spends a lot of money, prices go up and the Reserve Bank had to respond by raising the OCR. Then there was uh, criticism first that they weren't raising it fast enough and inflation got out of hand. Now that they have raised the OCR to 5.5%, everybody's saying maybe they raised them too fast. I don't think so. I think uh, there were necessary steps. um, And yes, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but we all knew that an increase in the OCR will slow down the economy a bit. Mm. Sentiment within the business community is down. They're expecting worse times ahead. Is that fair? Well, if you are, especially in the service sector that has gone from plus 3.5% growth to minus 3.5% growth in that first quarter, I'm not surprised that sentiment is down. And hey, if you read the word recession, sentiment is down instantly because it's one of those buzzwords that people are all uh, worried about. I understand the concerns, but if you look at the bigger picture of our economy, we're still doing okay. So it's okay to slow down a bit? It is because it's really a readjustment to um, where we should be. The economy was overheating with all the financial stimulus coming from the government. So we are now just readjusting to a level where our economy can operate sustainably. So I think um, more readjustment than anything long term we have to worry about. And how long will that readjustment take? Um, as I've said, it's just we expect the economy to grow a bit again in the next quarter and see a slight upturn, especially with migration filtering um, through and the global outlook being a bit better, hopefully as well. Um, so it's normal cycles we go through. And hey, not surprising after we've been hit by uh, bad weather uh, for quite some time that has hit our key industries, that will take a bit of recovery. It's a cycle. It's an up and down at the moment, a bit down and will be up soon. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. You're welcome, thank you.
1: Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at
0: our website, nbr.co.nz.
3: Fitness Kitchen is owned by Nelson's family-run FSL Foods, New Zealand's leading supplier of frozen fruit. The company recently leapt on an overseas trend to snacking on frozen fruit to develop a frozen, chocolate-covered berry product, and has other big plans. FSL Foods Managing Director Eliana Glover is with me, and Eliana, let's take a step back and look at the company. It's got quite a heritage in Nelson, doesn't it?
6: it does um you know we just celebrated 20 years of fsl this year in march which was you know we got the whole team together and had a big celebration but you know history actually goes back much further so my um great granddad uh he actually planted the first raspberry crop in the nelson tasman region and that was in the 1930s so you know i'm fourth generation now um on that side of the family to be working in this industry. So yeah, it's it's something pretty special to be able to put my own spin on it, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely. And berries are a notoriously temperamental crop. And I think you've mentioned before that the number of growers has actually reduced quite significantly.
6: It has, you know, it's um it's a question we get asked all the time to be honest, is, you know, why why don't we source solely from New Zealand? And you know, I'm I'm not sure if people are aware, but it, it's become increasingly difficult to source New Zealand fruit. Um, so year on year, the number of growers kind of dwindles, and it does get harder. I guess that's probably made even more difficult by the fact that you know, if you're a grower, you you make your most money selling fresh fruit, right? And then frozen fruit's a little further down the down the rank. Um, so only 10% of your crop might go to frozen. So if you think about it, there's only you know five big blueberry growers in New Zealand. That's actually a pretty small amount um, to work with.
3: <laughs> so you've taken a slightly different approach to the likes of Watties, which has its name on every product. You are more like a house of brands, a house of a whole lot of brands. Why have you gone that way?
6: I, I think that was just a gradual evolution, I guess. you know We did start with the one brand, and we, we put it in as fruzio, and this would be going back years ago now, so 15 years ago or so, well before I was here. Um, and, you know, that was our kind of bread and butter range. And then as we've kind of got to know the industry more and, and the shopper has looked for new exciting fruits or New Zealand-specific brands or a bulk, you know, pack, we've kind of evolved and, and added brands to the range. So, yeah, I'd say it's probably a natural evolution, but not looking to add any additional brands right now. we've
3: got enough. (laughs) You've had a challenging last few years. Obviously, the growers have as well. But can you just explain from your business's perspective how it's been?
6: Yeah, I think, you know, I I know from chatting to lots of other people in the FMCG industry that we're not alone in terms of it's been tough going. We've had kind of a perfect storm over the last few years. So we've had, you know, increased demand off the back of, you know, the COVID pandemic. So a lot more people buying um, frozen fruit. We've had decrease in supply because, you know, as I guess... We see um, kind of climate change take take hold around the world. We're getting variable seasons. So, you know, you might get frost at the right wrong time or it's too hot. So, you know, it, we're kind of seeing a reduction in the crop that we can source as well. Add into that some supply chain issues, slow shipping, inflation, you know, and, and it's been tough going. Um, you know, something I did mention to you before, Dieter, was you know it's not so easy in our industry as well we can't just pass on those costs straight away so we kind of incur those costs um, and it's you know at a minimum three months before we can kind of pass that on to the shopper and you know we obviously don't want to pass that on but we also have to make sure that we're still making money to stay in business and you know make sure we're still providing jobs to our team. (laughs) Yes on the other hand COVID did
3: deliver you quite a big boost of business, of interest in the kind of products that you're you're um, providing. And also inflation yeah. has its own impact on people looking at frozen fruit and vegetables, doesn't it?
6: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, one of the major trends we're seeing at the moment, and I think we're all feeling it, we're all, you know, feeling the pinch at the moment. So, you know, you're looking at how can you make your dollars go further? How can you reduce your food waste? And, you know, some of the obvious answers to that are, are buying frozen um, so we, we definitely have seen an increase there, you know, also as the price of fresh produce, you know, you might even notice that the, the price of your fresh onions, for example, skyrocketed. I was crazy how much I paid for a couple of red onions the other day. And so, you know, therefore you see people buying more frozen onion or, you know, frozen produce. So it, it definitely has a flow on of effect.
3: And we're talking about the end of COVID. You got on a plane pretty soon after restrictions were lifted and you went overseas and you saw this this trend that interested you. What was that?
6: Yeah, I was, well, like many of us, I'm itching to get out, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was on kind of one of the first flights um, over to the States. And, you know, whenever I'm going overseas, I spend half of... My trip, I guess, going into supermarkets and going to food expos and, and checking out the, the kind of up and coming trends and making sure we can be ahead of the curve and, and delivering that for New Zealand shoppers. But, you know, something I noticed last year when I went was uh, the trend towards kind of frozen fruit being used in snacks. So, more bite sized, portioned, um, you know, covered in chocolate or peanut butter or whatever that is. And so, it, it definitely gave me the idea to bring something like that to New Zealand. Um, which is what we have done. So we're just rolling out our new Goodness Kitchen Chop Bites, which are effectively kind of frozen fruit, single dipped in dark chocolate. So they're delicious. You know, if you think about your, you know, Kiwi summer classic of chalk covered strawberries, it's, it's like having that year round. So yeah, pretty excited to roll those ones out. Yeah.
3: And it's a bit of a step change for the company. It's a slight step change.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's aligned in in the sense that, you know, it's, it's frozen fruit and that's kind of, um, you know, our bread and butter at the end of the day. But it is, you know, it did require us, you know, purchasing new um, machinery lines. And, you know, we put a lot of time into, I guess, um, finding the, the perfect product or producing the perfect product. So I think at the heart of FSL, you know, innovation is really key. And, and that's really important to me. But but also to my family, who you know sit behind the business as well, and so I see this as you know our next step in terms of innovation and bringing new products to the New Zealand market. So yeah, pretty excited and proud to be kind of the first New Zealand company to bring this. Here. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> and Eliana, just finally, um, you are looking at maybe next year, uh, honing in on exporting, which is obviously a big thing for most New Zealand companies. Where do you see the company, if you had, if you could fulfill all your wishes, where will it be in five years' time, do you think?
6: I had a little um, genie <laughs> granting all my wishes. Um, you know, we've had some really good growth over the last few years um, and I'm looking to continue that. So I think that's a real mix of um, kind of innovation and then also, you know, seeking new opportunities. So for us, you know, exports are pretty key one and something that I will be focusing on over the next few years. And also just working with our existing partners, um, and you know, the retailers. With you know, what do shoppers want? How can we improve our range? How can we, you know, make the experience better for for the you know end user of our product? So I see those kind of three things as probably key to to growing and achieving what I'm hoping we will over the next five to ten years.
3: Eliana, thank you so much for talking to MBR.
6: You're welcome. (laughs) Lovely.
2: EcoZip Adventures is a climate positive award winning adventure and ecotourism business on Waiheke Island in Auckland's Hariki Gulf. It was co founded in 2012 by Gavin Oliver and Chris Hollister. And Gavin Oliver joins me now. Welcome, Gavin.
0: Good morning. Welcome. Thanks very much.
2: Um, I believe the idea for EcoZip was born out of a conversation in a bar. Tell us how, how it
0: started. Yeah, so Chris and I had got this idea about what what we were talking about was commercial conservation or the idea that you could use a a commercial organisation to fund conservation outcomes. And obviously today we talk a lot about sustainable tourism, um, but that wasn't a phrase that was common then. Um, And it was this kind of ethereal idea. um, And over a few beers we began to whittle down how one might do this. um, and, And zip lines became the idea or it became the vehicle to do some of the stuff we're doing.
2: Had either of you been involved in tourism before?
0: No. Um so I'd come into New Zealand on an entrepreneur class visa in two thousand and eight, and I'd written a business plan um, which uh, I submitted to Immigration New Zealand. Um, and it was to create a sightseeing company uh, and start doing small group tours, high end small group tours, which wasn't my background at all. My background was corporate, uh, corporate aviation actually. Um, Chris is in retirement communities uh, and still is. So we jokingly say this pair of idiots that knew nothing about a zip line or knew nothing about adventure tourism, let alone zip lines, um, set up a, a zip line business.
2: How much involvement does Chris have, given he's based in Texas?
0: Um, well, he's kind of semi nomadic, so he spends quite a bit of the year here. Um, he has a home on Waiheke, so he's intimately involved. I mean, there probably isn't a day goes by when we're not chatting.
2: So you're originally from the from the UK. How did how did you end up in New Zealand, or why?
0: Why? Yeah. So the, the, the why is I came here for five days in 2008 um, as part of a it was it was tacked onto the end of a business trip. Um, and there were a couple of moments, there's two that really strike me. There was sitting with my sister down at Mission Bay, under the Pahuta Cow, eating fish and chips from a box from the Fishpot Cafe. And Samantha told me about these ferries that were going backwards and forwards to this island that was full of vineyards. And I thought, well, I quite like this. Um, and then there was another moment, on, standing on the viewing deck of the Transalpine Train, crossing the Canterbury Plains. It was a stinking hot February day, and there were guys in rivers fly fishing, and and I just thought, this is This is magic, I love it. And I I went back to the UK, um, reasonably convinced I wanted to move, uh, and I jumped on the underground one day, and it was one of those days when the underground was so packed the only way you could read your newspaper was to roll it into a tube. And above the door, there was an ad, 100% Pure New Zealand ad, a picture of Milford Sound, and it said, wouldn't you rather be here? And I just thought, well, it's just a sign.
2: <laughs> it sure was a sign. Okay, um, your company was doing great until COVID struck, um, and you lost, you know, seventy percent of your business. How hard was it coping during that time, and and what did you do to survive?
0: Um, I think if if you look at it from if you look at it into Respects. I mean, you've got the kind of the mental side of suddenly you're cut off from your 70% of your customers, 75% of your customers overnight, and that's quite a challenge. And, and, and naturally, as a, a small business owner, you feel a, a great deal of responsibility to your people, um, and they were deeply worried. And it was about keeping them in jobs and how do we how do we look after them? Um, so there was that, and then there's the practicality of keeping the business afloat. Um, and I think. If you look at the former, Chris and I made a decision really early on that we'd support our team with 100% of their salaries for as long as it lasted and we funded that through some development money we had in the business um, and so we were able to keep the team in, 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 in full time employment. Um, and then it really began a process of looking at the business and how do, we, how do we pitch the business, how do we shift to a much more domestic focus, how do we change our voice, how do we change the narrative for our domestic customers.
2: And how did that go?
0: It was it was pretty successful. We managed to to drag the business to a point where um, we came back to about fifty percent of our pre-COVID numbers. So a fairly significant uplift in terms of domestic customers versus pre-COVID. Um, and what was really important was that those customer satisfaction statistics, you know, that, that, that we monitor so closely, remained. And in fact, they they actually climbed. So I think whilst COVID was difficult to navigate, we also learned something about ourselves and we learned something about our customers too.
2: In terms of that, are you back to, to normal or so-called normal?
0: Not quite. We're. we're I was actually speaking um, at a Tourism New Zealand event yesterday, um, and I believe we're at about 55% of pre-COVID holiday arrivals. Um, the, f- the future looks quite good. I mean, we've got a big increase in air connectivity coming to New Zealand from this summer. Um, and in fact, I think on North America, we're going to be at about 105% of pre-COVID numbers, which bodes quite well. So for the business, yeah, we've, we've had a, a better than expected summer. Winter looks quiet, um, but we always know winter is going to be quiet. But we're, we're looking forward to, we think, to quite a good spring and summer.
2: So if you had to put a percentage on it, um, how much are you back to what think, you
0: were? I think we're probably about 75% of pre-COVID right now.
2: Right, which isn't too bad.
0: Yeah, no, look, we're back in the black, um, and I'll live with that right now.
2: Fair enough. OK, um, you're looking to expand later this year. Tell us a bit about where and, and, and how.
0: Yeah, this is a journey that began in 2014 when we first looked at Kaikoura down on South Island, and I fell in love with the place. Um, and obviously, in the intervening period, there was a small problem with an earthquake and a pandemic. Um, but the plan now is to open in November. Um an absolutely spectacular site in South Bay, overlooking uh, the airfield and looking up towards the peninsula. Two point two kilometres of zip lines, um, which uh, I think, in, you know, arguably could possibly be the most spectacular zip lines in the Southern Hemisphere.
2: What's the cost of that?
0: Um, We think at the moment it's going to be around $2 million, soup to nuts. Um, We broke ground on Wednesday. Um, It's looking pretty good. We're working with some fantastic contractors on this. Um, And so I'm I'm reasonably confident we're going to stay on budget. But I'm long enough in the tooth to know that you, you don't know what you don't know.
2: So this is the first expansion outside of Waheke. Um, Do you plan to do more, or what's your sort of long-term vision?
0: Yeah, we'd love to do more, and I think um, we'd like to partner with other people. Um, We've just been invited to get involved in a project in, um, probably shouldn't say who, but, you know, with a South Pacific Island, um, which is quite interesting as a potential JV, Um, and we would like to do other things, predominantly in the adventure tourism and eco-tourism space. That's what we're interested in.
2: So you're looking at doing things beyond ziplining then?
0: We're certainly open to. Look, The ziplining is what we've become quite good at, that's what we know, um, but we're, we're really open-minded. Um, and if there's anything that's got a, an ecotourism focus on it, and look, this is really important. Um, some stats have just come out, so uh, a survey by Expedia 26,000 travellers across 13 markets, so a big data sample, says that 75% of travellers are looking to engage with activities, transport accommodation providers that are proactively supporting the community and doing things that leave the environment better than when they arrived. And that, that just chimes completely with where we are as a business. That's what excites us and, and they're the kind of things we'd like to get behind.
2: So let's talk a bit about well, what you do on that on that side of things. What have you achieved so far in terms of conservation? Yeah.
0: So the, the site we occupy um, is a, a site of environmental significance. It's about 700 years old um, and as, as your, your, your readers and listeners will know, um, much of New Zealand was covered in dense native forests prior to European arrival. Those forests were cleared for agriculture. So we've had a programme running for the last 10 years to restore that site to how it would have been um, prior to European settlement, but we're now going further than that. We In 2019, we opened the opportunity for our guests to donate native trees as part of the booking process, blown away by the number of people doing that. It's become so successful, we've run out of space to plant trees of our own and we're now donating trees to other organisations. So, for example, about three weeks ago, it's just a huge pleasure. I, there's a, 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 the Friends of Mackenzie Reserve on the northern side of the island. There's a former pine plantation, 10 hectares, um, that was covered in 500 pines 20 years ago. A bunch of volunteers have taken the pines out, 12,000 volunteer hours. They've put in 15,000 native trees. It's beautiful. And I was able to phone them and say, we've got some money, can we help? Um, and so for the next 12 months we're funding their tree planting, we're funding the, the, the weed and pest eradication and their, and their track maintenance. So that's the kind of stuff we're doing.
2: You've also personally got involved in the wider tourism industry. Um, do you feel a need to give back as well on that front? <sighs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Fiona, I do. I mean, I think it's it's really important, um, and I and it's both professionally but also personally. So if, if you look at professionally, um, if I'm able to help and uh, advocate for my fellow small businesses, then certainly I want to.
2: Because um, tourism in New Zealand is basically small businesses.
0: It? it is, yeah. Look, if you if you look at before the borders closed, but you know a stat I got from tourism industry Aotearoa was twenty nine thousand businesses, of which most of which were owner operators. Um, so we are a, a real grassroots industry, um, and so if I can help some of those people and, and impart some of the stuff we've learned, then 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 certainly I will.
2: So, what's your long term goal with the for yourself and Chris? What, what what do you want to achieve? Well,
0: this is, I think it summarises a really lovely moment actually with Chris one day down in Kaikoura looking at the farm at Rakanui Station. Um, and we were looking at these hillsides, and, and obviously it's farming land. Um, so, there's a lot of gorse and there's a lot of, you know. And we, we then started talking with the landowner, Bruce, about planting native trees and how we could potentially plant 30,000 trees a year there. Um, and Chris and I sort of looked at each other and there was this moment, you know, where you, you think. It, it would be lovely one day for our kids when they're maybe our age to stand back and look at some you know, new you know, plantation growing and, 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 and we know New Zealand natives grow quickly um, so it would probably look pretty impressive in about 30 years. To be able to say, our dads did that. And I think that's the, that's the kind of thing. I think as you get older you start to think about what kind of legacy you're going to leave.
2: Thanks for your time, Gavin Oliver.
0: And that's been this week's People and Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz